If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. While today, London may be a buzzing metropolis, in the Roman era, it was a provincial city on the fringes of the empire. In his new book, London in the Roman World, Dominic Perring discusses what we know about the city's ancient past and how its story ties into that of the wider empire. Speaking with Emily Briffitt, he examines the city's key turning points and explores how life in the Roman city was affected by fire, plague and warfare. So today we are going to be talking about your book, London in the Roman Worlds. And I think the most important question to start off with is why is London an important site for us to look at when we are studying the Romans? Gosh, lots of reasons. But the big reason is we just know an awful lot about it. People have been digging in London for 400, 450 years. And obviously in the city of London, new skyscrapers, the the pace, the sheer intensity of archaeological work is unmatched, I think, anywhere else in the world. I'd, I'd argue it's the world's most intensely studied archaeological site. So there's a lot of it. That's a, that's a good place to start. It's also London, and, and that's a massive global city now. It has, since it was created, always been quite important. It's it's there to, to rule Britain. So if we're interested in Britain, we're interested in it. 
Was London as significant in this period as it is today? Not in terms of the Roman world. As a Roman city, it's a, it's a frontier city. It's on the edge of empire. It, it, it's very important for the ruling of Britain. And of course, in terms of British history, it was important then too. It was, it was the site from which Rome tried to govern the province of Britain. So you spoke a little bit about um, it being very intensely studied as an archaeological site. Could you tell us a bit more about this? Could you tell a bit more about the digs that have gone on? Well, the, there's been, a, uh, as I said, a lot of research goes back a long way. Uh, antiquarians, uh, historians were fascinated by the legends of, Ro- of, of London's origins, were fascinated to, to build arguments about what London was and why it was important. And so archaeology has been going on in, in London for, as I say, 400, 450 years, uh, 1580s, a Renaissance discovery. But the last generation, uh, essentially the, the, the period since the Second World War, has seen a great intensification of what's called rescue archaeology as building sites have, have brought archaeologists onto them. And so the pace of research has picked up um, rapidly. Uh, slowing down now a bit, of course, because what with COVID-19 and and other political circumstances, the City of London isn't seeing quite so many building sites going on. But even things like Crossrail, uh, Thameslink and and other exercises have involved bringing archaeologists in large numbers onto building sites. Uh, And in particular, people from the Museum of London who've been doing a fantastic job at piecing together the story of London's past. It's mostly going on in central London, and so it's the city of London and Southwark that are the main targets of intense archaeological research into London, because that's where the Roman city was. And in there, it really is hundreds of sites. So to start sort of saying this one, that one, I mean, I'm very particularly fond of of discoveries by London Bridge at at places like Regis House and and in that area. Uh, Obviously, the work at the site of the amphitheatre in Guildhall Yard. Uh, These are all important archaeological sites, Doug, but it's the sheer combined weight of so many different investigations that gives us a new story to tell. It's not just the volume. Finding lots of things is is great fun if you're doing it. It doesn't necessarily make it important. Um, But that importance comes out of the quality of the documentation that goes on. And in particular, it's deeply stratified sites in the City of London that have uh, produced our ability to, to build chronologies, to build narratives, to piece together the changes that go on in the city. And when you're doing that hundreds of times over across a, a big urban landscape, you're beginning to, to get enough pieces of jigsaws to, to start to make some quite startling and big conclusions about what the picture is and what they mean. So how can we see this narrative shift in the archaeology? How can we see that change, that story? It, we build chronologies first, and, and the building of those is, is from different sources. Uh, Excavation archaeology is very driven by concepts of stratification, and we can put the relative order in which new floors were laid, new houses were built, destruction horizons, and that relative chronology of stratigraphy is is the first tool, as it were. And we have archaeological sites in, in central London with tens of thousands of different stratigraphic units, each one a different episode of building, construction, destruction, whatever. That relative sequence then needs to be pinned in time. And we've got two ways of, well, several ways of doing that, but two key ones. They are uh, the ceramics, the pottery, and the fashion of bringing in new supplies of certain kinds of pot 
wax and wane and we see changes in supply as new sources are, are used, new importers arrive. And those changes of supply, when we're looking at millions upon millions of bits of broken pottery, and we have millions upon millions upon millions of them, uh, uh, gives us a, uh, a chronology built on, on ceramic typology. And, and we know when different sites were producing pots, we know when they were being broken and, and used. So that tightens things down. But in London, the killer source of evidence we've got is dendrochronology, tree ring dating. And the forests around London were uh, being exploited by the people who were building London for their building timbers. As each tree is chopped down and transported to London, it's mainly on demand. Um, each uh, mega building operation, each large scale building of London's Roman port or its, its new public buildings required an injection of new timber. And that new timber wasn't just left hanging around in, in, in lumber yards, there was too much needed, but also it just made sense to transport it green. And we know they're using these timbers as fresh timbers uh, through the study of the, the wood itself. We can see the bark on it. We have whether or not there's, there's cracks opening up because it's been left to dry out through time and, and those sorts of things. And we know London's timber is being used a year or so after it's being felled, uh, often the same year it's been felled. And so each construction programme in London comes with these trees. We count the rings. I can't do it myself, but the people who are good at dendrochronological analysis count that the, the rings see that the hot summers, the, the dry summers, the, the wet uh, and whatever, and can measure that the, the changes uh, that, that date the timbers. And so we have exact felling years for construction timbers. So we are talking about thousands of precisely dated buildings. Now you ally that to the evidence we've got from the pottery, you ally that to the relative chronology we've got from the stratigraphy, and we end up with the most amazingly well-dated sequence of activity. And these timbers survive because London, with its river, the Thames, is sufficiently waterlogged below ground level that those bits of wood are terribly well-preserved. They're a bit of a pain to get out of the ground, but they are an absolutely critical uh, building block in understanding the Roman city. And it's all those dates that make it so exciting to me. And it, it actually means that in London, we can begin to use archaeology almost as if it was an historical source, because we have absolute calendar dates for certain things going on. Uh, and a, and a, an awful lot of very good work is being done, M mostly not by me. I mean, there are some fantastic people working on this material whose results I happily plunder in writing a book. Are there any particular problems you encounter more generally when trying to link the archaeological and endochronological record with the historical record? Well, the, the big problem for us, of course, is from London itself, there's very little historical record. Uh, the city is described in uh, certain big political events, uh, the conquest of Britain matters, uh, the Boudican revolt is a famous historical moment, and there are a few others such. But most of them aren't that interested in London. London is, is, is in the background, as it were. People write histories about Rome in Britain. London might occasionally get mentioned. Um, when the emperors come to visit, that's always a big deal. People like describing what, what emperors are doing. But they don't come here that often. So we, we actually don't have much London Roman history to work with. But we do have what we know about the history of Roman Britain, and that's rebuilt from historical sources as well as archaeological ones. And also we know what's going on in the Roman Empire as a whole. And London is fascinating as 
a sort of mirror of Rome. I mean, it, it's got its own story, but that story is within the context of what emperors are up to, what generals are make, waging which campaigns, where soldiers are needed, and whatever. So there is a uh, a lot of material to, to we can use in marrying archaeology to history, but it's it's at a distance in the sense that London's history itself is not that carefully described. Um, and that then poses its own set of problems in is archaeology about history? Is history about archaeology? These are different sources, and we need to be very careful in not in not misusing them. And and, and I say very careful. I, I'm perhaps not always as careful as I should be in my books. I, I quite like making the archaeology part of a, a, an historical narrative. So talking about that, fitting it into the historical narrative, maybe one of the most contextual and most important questions really to get onto is, what actually was London's role within the Roman Empire? How do we see this perhaps change? That's two big questions, really. It, the role within the empire, the role within the empire is um, a developing one. But London really doesn't look to have existed before Rome conquered Britain. Uh, the Thames itself was actually quite a formidable barrier. It's it, it, it's not easy to cross the river. I mean, we now don't notice it as we get on the tube or, or cross over the bridges. But in in when Rome arrived in Britain, uh, there probably were not bridging points uh, in the tidal reaches of the river at all. Um, and the tidal reaches, again, are a, a major interruption. Tides change the shape of landscapes. Uh, they can catch you unawares it, 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 when the river isn't fully embanked. So... Uh, the Thames was a barrier. London was therefore a, a peripheral place. It was on the boundary between pre-Roman polities. There were kingdoms in, in southern Britain who probably used certain stretches of the river as a frontier. Um, and cities on frontiers are a bit more vulnerable. So London comes into being when Rome pulls southern Britain into a single governed polity. And that's an act of conquest. But on conquest, you've got a place that then does become a sensible place to pull together what's happening north of the river and south of the river. But but London is born of its bridge. And, and when that bridge is built and why that bridge is built is perhaps one of the most exciting mini questions in working out the history of Rome and London is, is who put that bridge there and why? And I think it, it's a conquest phase uh, exercise. And, and that's much argued. But I... I certainly think the evidence is coming together to suggest that London was put there when Rome conquered Britain and perhaps very much as, as a conquest period uh, site uh, where the army was, was waiting on the Emperor Claudius. For how long do we see Roman presence in London? Uh, once we've got Rome conquering Britain, um, and it's a violent conquest, uh, it subjugates the British Isles and it continues its rule for uh, the best part of four centuries. Um, the, the Roman conquest we know quite a lot about. It's documented uh, in various historical sources, uh, Dio in particular, uh, and that happens in AD 43. So we know that in AD 43, legions are arriving, they are being shipped uh, into Britain, they are marching their way up to the River Thames, Whereas I've just mentioned, they waited on the Emperor Claudius. Um, and London is perhaps where Claudius himself arrived uh, to lead the forces of Rome uh, on to conquer the rival capital, the enemy capital at Colchester. And whether London is the site that that happened is, is argued, but, but my book certainly makes the case for London being the site of that, that uh, bridge crossing. Once that bridge is there, 
it survives into the, the, the late Roman period. Whether it fully survives the Roman period is, is an interesting question. We know by the time you're getting into the uh, late 4th century uh, that London is, is in dilapidation in certain areas and places. We know that people are uh, digging holes to, to extract gravel from what used to be the road surface. So you wouldn't therefore easily be able to get your ox wagons to the, to the bridge. And maybe that means the bridge isn't there. So we've got that that sort of late Roman bit where London is perhaps in decline before what's called the end of the Roman period. But it it's usually seen, the end of the Roman period, as, as coming in, in the beginning of the 5th century. And that's that still is quite a key date, is that late 4th into 5th century date, when London ceases to be an effective site for the ruling of Britain. And that's largely because Rome is ceasing to rule Britain. And London exists because Rome needs it, ceases to exist when Rome doesn't. So to what extent could we say that London was actually dependent on Rome and its empire? I think we could say a very high degree of dependency. It it, it is put there not only to rule the province, it's a site of administration, but also to organise its supply. And the port of London that grows up around this bridging point is an enormously vibrant and busy hub. Um, Ships are coming in, up the rising tide, and the goods they're bringing are those that the Roman administration needed. Some are are supplies directly for the army, some are to to feed the administrators and and, and the wealthy community that's gathering around them. Uh, And London is therefore uh, a site for trade, but it's very much trade uh, built around the needs of the administration. And London is, is probably quite closely governed by the administration. And again, this is an an area of current academic debate. To what extent is it a place of merchants? To what extent is it a place of soldiers? To what extent is it a place of of government officials? What role did it have for other communities, the the, the British who who, who were being ruled by Rome? Um, And in there, Of course, all of those communities are involved. I I don't think there's any doubt that London is a very cosmopolitan place uh, under the Roman Empire. But that cosmopolitan nature is because that's what served Rome's interests. And we do see it as being a place of rule, a place of government, where the supplies accrue to to the control that Rome establishes. Could you tell us a little bit more about how the governance worked in London? We've got historical sources which give us a fair amount of information of what's going on in Britain, but they're not entirely clear. Um, it, it, it's Tacitus who, who, who gives us the first real clues as to what's going on in London when he describes the events of the Boudican Revolt in, in AD 60-61. And he goes out of his way to tell us that, that it's not a Roman colony, but a, a place full of businessmen and, and the people who are supporting Rome. And how we interpret those comments uh, again, an area of, of scholarly interest and debate, but it does seem likely that that London was remaining quite strongly under uh, the whether it's the direct control, the governor, the procurator who's in charge of the emperor's financial affairs, or to what extent there's a mercantile community that begins to fill the gaps around that administration is is a, an area of discussion. I personally see the role of the governor as terribly important to London. And we do know from some of the uh, written texts found in London, and there are these wonderful writing tablets, a lot of them coming out of the Bloomberg headquarters building, which talk about a community of, of soldiers, a community of uh, merchants who, who are based in London. And there we, we, we kind of are given clues that London doesn't have its own civic administration until quite late on in the Roman period. So it's not necessarily a self-governing city 
in the sort of way that most Roman cities were, who have their own curia, their own town council. Um, and I, I would suggest that London probably has a strong direct control from, from the government officials that Rome placed here, the governor and the procurator. So talking a little bit about the people within London, what can we tell from the archaeological record of those who lived there and what their lives might have been like? Again, uh, one of the most fascinating sources is the writing tablets, but they this these, these are texts uh, inscribed on 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 uh, wax that was laid into wood, and uh, uh, scholars such as Roger Tomlin are, are doing a fantastic job at deciphering those texts and, and converting them. Now, most of them don't tell us the things we'd love to know about people. It's very much about business and money lending and uh, securing goods and and uh, th- those sorts of things. But they, they do give us a community of, of people whose names we know. They give us a community whose, whose business we know something about. Um, and that reflects on, on a very cosmopolitan community on one side. We, we know that we've got uh, soldiers were arriving from the German frontier. Uh, we, we know of merchants with Gallic names. We, we know of uh, uh, officials from Rome. Um, add to that, we've got a wonderful source of evidence coming out of the human remains as well, the, the burials. Now, these are mainly of the later Roman period because the early Roman site, uh, cremation was still favoured in most instances, not universally, but more people went into a funeral pyre on their death than went into a coffin. So it's only the later period we start to get large numbers of the skeletons. But there's some fantastic work going on in the isotopic analysis of the teeth in terms of the ancient DNA. And that, again, is, is talking of a very uh, cosmopolitan community. Uh, and there's even a suspicion that we've got uh, people of Chinese origin in Roman London. We certainly know... As I say about our Gauls and our Italians, uh, the Germans, we've got burial customs as well, people wearing clothing uh, and types of fashion that that looks to to represent different communities. And what's fascinating is those different identities are uh, very acceptable in London. People could be buried in different ways, reflecting on their cultural affiliation, of course what people choose to wear doesn't necessarily tell you where they come from, but it certainly tells you about the ideas they subscribe to and and how they see themselves in society. And London, wonderfully cosmopolitan, but actually the most invisible part of it from an archaeological point of view, uh, is is the native, is is the British. And it does look as if these immigrant communities, um, these uh, populations moving in to serve the interests of Rome, are those people already have... Uh, an engagement with what Rome is doing. Um, Whereas London being placed somewhere which doesn't have a pre-existing native population, as I've just suggested, it was probably a frontier area in in, in the pre-Roman period, there isn't a large local community to draw upon for your labour, for your craftsmen, for your merchants, for, for whatever. And they never make a big presence. We do see them in London. There are certain uh, burials which of people who've definitely grown up in the area. And in the earlier period, we've got patterns of pottery use and uh, fashions of jewellery and technologies which suggest some contact w- with what's going on in Britain before the Roman period. But often in very peripheral areas. These are, I would argue, marginalised communities in buildings that look to have been deliberately placed on the edges of where the settlement was, using architectures that were certainly not fashionable in, in the town centre. So, uh, and, and some of these are perhaps slaves, others uh, maybe they're pursuing uh, the opportunities that a big city brings, but it does look quite controlled. There is a sense that London is being uh, bounded 
and uh, managed and governed in a way that favours the colonial administration and doesn't have particular regard for the interests of the people over whom it's ruling. Is it possible to perhaps estimate the number of people that we could have seen living in London? Well, there has been a, a, a very good and careful study made uh, a few years ago attempting to estimate London's population. And I I religiously follow that particular study rather than coming up with my own arguments. I think I would agree in any case, but I've not gone into the, 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 the close detail they have. Um, but that has shown by looking at building density, by looking at the extent of the settlement, by looking at the numbers of rooms in houses, uh, it's tried to calculate population densities from, from solid uh, evidence. You can't do it from the burials because, as I say, cremation was widely used at some periods and they cover a long period of time. Um, so by looking at building density, by looking at how many people live in buildings, estimates of family size, we've got an idea that the peak population of London is probably, uh, possibly, probably, in that the, the order of the 30,000, 35,000, that, that sort of number, um, which is modest by modern standards, but in the ancient world makes it quite a substantial city. Uh, the Roman Empire, it was quite common for towns to have five, ten thousand 10,000 inhabitants. So a place of 30,000 odd is, is big. Now, it wouldn't have been that big all the way through. And I guess this is going back to this whole business about change through time. London grows through the, the early Roman period. It then looks to shrink quite dramatically in, in the later Roman period. Um, at the time of the Boudiccan revolt, it's probably more like 10, 15,000 people living here. So it's growing up from a small base to a bigger one. Hits its peak early second century. The Emperor Hadrian is, is often seen as the, the high point in, in, in lots of things in Britain. Um, and, and certainly in terms of London's population density, that, that might well also be the peak. Um, but then we get a very dr dramatic fall off in building density uh, in the later second century. A lot of work's gone into trying to work out whether it, 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 the city really shrinks or whether this is a misreading of the evidence. There's, there's, a, there's quite heated arguments over how to read what's called dark earth, this horizon which is associated with the abandonment of built-up areas and their conversion into to, to open ground, wastelands of some sort. Um, but people argue differently about when that process occurred. Some see it as a late Roman, post-Roman event as, as the city gets abandoned. Um, I tend to I'm, I'm fairly confident that there's a strong uh, phase of contraction in the uh, AD 160s, and London could shrink by as much as a third, perhaps even more, actually. I say third, as much as a third, um, simply by looking at how many building plots look to be abandoned, how many building plots are still occupied. Uh, I think you could argue that the city goes from being 30,000 plus back to being 10, 15, 20,000, much like it had been at the time of the Bullican Revolt. So it's, it's, it's not disappearing, but it is, I think, seeing considerable population reduction. Um, and then the city has other phases of contraction and then repopulation. And there is suggestive evidence of phases of the reintroduction of, of new people, immigrants to Britain. Uh, the later period sees more North African uh, influences coming in. And this could be a, a period of formal resettlement of, of people being brought back in. So there's a, there's a, a lot of change going on. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The whole city was burnt to the ground. Immediately after the fire, you've got 
scattered bits of dead people around the edges of town who look to have been uh, corpses that are dismembered and left to rot for a while because they're the, the, the baddies, the other side. So it's, it's the, the, the ghastly things people do to each other in, in, in a war event. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. If we overlaid a map of modern-day London with one of Roman London, where exactly would be the boundaries? Where would we see that? For much of its uh, Roman life, London had a city wall put up there probably in the early 3rd century. And that became the wall of the medieval city. And that therefore is the city of London. Hence, it would be the city of London. Um, And the clues in the names, London Wall is a road that follows the line of London Wall, the Barbican, um, the Tower of London at one end, uh, the Old Bailey at the other end, uh, the gates, Newgate, uh, Bishop's Gate. These are all of them the entry points into the medieval city. But the medieval city had inherited its town walls along the line of the Roman city. So that's the core of the urban site. Um, Actually, the bit that sat on the other side of the river, um, Southwark uh, as now is, uh, the Transpontine settlement, is probably just as old as the city. Indeed, as I mentioned earlier on, this this might be where the Claudius arrived with his uh, elephants and and, and established himself ready to to move on to Colchester. So that that area of Southwark is quite central to to, to London and and it also has probably boatyards, has industry, has fascinating temple sites. It's, It's a very culturally interesting part of the city. So Southwark down from Borough Market, but but up to, to Borough High Street, those sorts of areas, is, is, is also highly urban. As you move beyond the walls, you've got the cemeteries that surround the site, and those cemeteries themselves are an enormously rich uh, source of, of archaeological evidence, Spitalfields, uh, but also crossing uh, the line of what was the Fleet River along Fleet Street, along uh, Newgate Street, and extending quite a way as you go towards Oxford Street, which of course still follows the line of the Roman Road, you still get uh, the odd burial and, and, and cemetery site going out 
quite a distance. Uh, and the same applies on the east side of the city as well, where uh, going beyond the Tower of London, beyond St. Catherine's Dock, at least from there, there are uh, these extended areas of suburbs and more extended cemeteries. And then we also get into what are suburban villas, and there are all the way up to, to Westminster, perhaps down as far as Shadwell, we have these satellite sites that are clearly in dialogue with the city, where there are masonry buildings, uh, probably hypercourse and baths, and um, there's the several of these uh, likely to be suburban villas in, in the immediate environs of the city. So if we were to take a walk around London in this period, what sort of thing could we expect to see? It would depend very much on when we were taking our walk. Uh, the early city is built quickly, as, as it needs to be. It's laid out probably with this grid of streets early on. These are gravel streets. And the houses either side uh, would be uh, wattle and door walls, uh, pantile or thatch roofs. Uh, as you move on a bit in time, uh, you get to the Neronian period, uh, 50s and 60s. We know the first bathhouses are probably being built around then. Not actually found the things in situ, which is frustrating, but we do find the broken bits of tile, the hypercourse, the flue tiles that were made specifically to allow heated baths to work. So we must guess that that's why they're here, is that they're being used to build bathhouses. Um, and we've also got a few bits of the uh, water pipes that people are laying on to bring water to the baths. And those would have been London's first masonry buildings because the bathing was very important for uh, the, the, the military community, but the administrative community to live in these Romanized ways, to, to enjoy the sophistication, the luxury, and, and the networking you do as, as, as you meet up in the bathhouse at the end of, of, of the morning and, and into the afternoon. Um, so we've got the creeping presence of, of, of masonry bathhouses. The waterfront itself shows this development through time. You start out by beaching boats on, on the Thames foreshore. The gravel is, is, is good enough, the boats, but quite soon people are looking to create hard standings so you can unload cargoes effectively. And then you're beginning to build the larger uh, quaysides and waterfronts. And a lot of these early port developments do look again to be helped by engineers, probably with military training, perhaps even by the army directly at certain points in time. Major building programs go on after the Boudicca Revolt, when we know the army is reoccupying London, uh, trying to suppress uh, Boudicca and her, her rebels and, and the mopping up operations. London is very central to that. Um, and this is when we get these massive big timbers being shipped down uh, river uh, to build the quays. Um, AD 63 is the dendro date, dendrochronology date we get for some of those. So it, it's beginning to radically change. And on it goes. We start to see in the second century a, a, a bigger, richer townhouses being built. There's a bit more space. People are beginning to put in fountains in their gardens occasionally. Uh, we're seeing uh, winged buildings, complicated structures, tile roofs come in. And at the same time, we're seeing the big public buildings come in. Uh, and for that, we have to thank uh, Vespasian and the early Flavian emperors who are heavily investing in London. Uh, and that's when we get our amphitheater. It's when we get some, some other public buildings. The forum gets built and lots of buildings, some of them very big. Uh, and and it, it, it changes its character. Still developing around the early gridded site that the early town had been, but growing and gaining in architectural pretension. That said, London's never 
as special a place as the great Roman cities we can visit if we go to the Mediterranean uh, with their fantastic temple architecture and their enormous forum, whatever. London does have a big forum. It does have interesting temples. But architecturally, they're they're pretty modest by comparison, Um, which I would suggest is another reflection on the fact that we don't have a local elite community who are making uh, their wealth locally and need to display their wealth locally to reinforce their social standing. I think a lot of London's Roman architecture is more driven by the interests of the governor and the administrative community. They're the people who leave us inscriptions we have, for the most part, not not universally. Um, And I think that creates a slightly different kind of architecture than you'd expect to see in in the Mediterranean provinces. So it's it's robust, it's busy, it, it grows, but it's not as it's not as fancy, shall we say, as some of the, the, the Mediterranean cities. So what can London tell us perhaps about the process of urbanisation at this time? Well, it, again, it, it's an unusual site. And I think the thing about being unusual is that that's very instructive. It's, it's not a typical city. It does depend far more on uh, Rome as a state actor, rather than the local communities based there. Uh, and that makes it unusual. But Rome as a state actor, of course, is, is fascinating when we're trying to study Roman imperial history. So London is quite a good way of getting clues as to imperial strategy, as to when investment's happening. And a lot of what we see in London does look to be uh, driven by these phases of when emperors were particularly concerned in winning prestige or keeping the army happy or expanding the empire. And so these more proactive periods of imperial involvement are attached often to to new dynasties trying to prove their worth. Uh, People who wish to to get the reflected glory that Caesar and Claudius had gained by conquering Britain to start with. Um, And the Flavian emperors in particular put a lot of energy and effort into making something of Britain. Uh, Vespasian uh, is is probably responsible for things like building the amphitheatre. And again, London's first really exciting public building is its amphitheatre. Now, if you were to go to other parts of the world, you'd expect a temple to be that built sooner. You'd expect uh, the fora, the marketplaces. But the fact that it's the amphitheatre, and it's not just about gladiatorial shows, the amphitheatre there is a statement of power. It's a statement of... Uh, I mean, this is where the ex- executions took place. This is the gladiatorial combat is related to uh, the, the, the other entertainments that happen in, in, in those buildings. It, it's, it's driven by the Flavian idea of concentrating power around the figure of the emperor. There would have been processions, the imperial cult, uh, perhaps celebrated in the, later on in the forum, would, would wind its way through to the grand shows. And the laying on of those shows is about imperial patronage, imperial power, and the audience would have included troops passing through and whatever. And, and that's where London's moving along, along those lines. Not so much its own civic virtues, its own identity as a place, uh, but it's but, but as part of Roman Empire. And that makes it absolutely fascinating. It's a very rich source of information about what the Roman world is up to. On the other hand to that, I guess the other side of it is the plagues, the fires, the warfare, the devastation of the city. Could you perhaps tell us a bit more about this side of it? This is where I think I'm trying to do something original in in, in the book I've just written. Um, We know that Rome and its cities uh, lived in fear of plague, war, famine. These are the big events that that messed with cities in the pre-modern world. Um, Archaeologists are very cautious about 
dealing with these themes because, of course, you can't actually see a plague. Um, uh, people die anyway, so so uh, it, it's not immediately visible in, in, in archaeological evidence. Similarly, a famine, how do you know? You can look at, at, at what happens with dentition, and there are aspects of, 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 of the human body that can help you. But to do that, you've got to have enough bodies. They've got to be well enough dated. Uh, famines are short episodes. Uh, so, so the archaeological evidence is difficult to read when we're talking about war, famine, and plague. But we know they're the big events that hurt the Roman world from city to city. London shows itself to have been damaged in in different ways at different times. We've got major fire episodes, and at least one of them we know is is, is the Boudican Revolt, because that is actually written about by historians. Um, And the Boudican Revolt left a very clear archaeological signature. The whole city was burnt to the ground. Immediately after fire, you've got scattered bits of dead people around the edges of town who look to have been uh, corpses that are dismembered and left to rot for a while because they're the the, the baddies, the other side. So it's it's the, uh, you know, the, the ghastly things people do to each other in, in, in a war event. So we've got the fire, we've got some, some, some scattered debris of human parts. Um, we've got then the rapid building of a big fort, well, big-ish, fort in the middle of town. We've got the building of a new keys so the ships can get in the new supplies quickly. We've got uh, the building of some new roads to allow bypassing troops to, to get quickly from place to place. So there's an archaeological signature that comes with the Boudican revolt that we can actually also see happening in the early second century. And we have this Hadrianic fire of London, which people have long thought, oh, that's, that's a fire, like the Great Fire of 1666. Cities burn from time to time, natural fires occur, and they do. Um, but the Hadrianic fire of London is remarkably comprehensive. It stretches to the very limits of every suburban area. And for fires to do that is, is unusual. Um, but also we've got the same signature happening afterwards. We've got some more scattered bits of, of corpse abuse and uh, bodies being left to rot before they're then swept away and pushed into the rivers and whatever. Um, we've also got new roads being built to allow troops perhaps to move around town. Uh, we've also got a new fort being built um, uh, at the Barbican. Um, and so that that kind of is a similar archaeological signature to what we saw in the Boudican period. And we do know that Britain suffered a war in, in the Hadrianic period. It is written about in the sources. Archaeologists have quite enjoyed arguing about when in the Hadrianic period it might have occurred, and the argument is, is, a, is, a, is a finely balanced one. Um, but the evidence from London would perhaps suggest that, that the, the city too was, was a target of, 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 of destruction um, by an army in revolt or even in repression. We don't know who put the torch first to the buildings, we can't even be sure that a torch was put. But it looks likely that that's the sort of thing going on. We certainly know that that, that the corpse abuse, the knocking around of, of, of bits of dead people uh, intensifies in the Hadrianic period. And, and it does look like a quite a violent period in, in, in the history of, of Roman Britain. Uh, putting a gentle question mark against the idea of Hadrian's rule being this rather happy time of benevolence and and, and investment. Um, And one suspects things like Hadrian's Wall aren't built exactly because of of, of love and good neighbourliness. So we've got wars out there, and we know that London is rapidly rebuilt in the wake of these destructions. There's a quick investment. There is an imperial uh, urgency to getting to grips with London. 
And that goes back to what I was saying earlier on about how London is very linked to the imperial project. And that, that rebuilding is a quick and forceful reassertion of Roman authority. But we've also got these other events going on in London, which are which show a very different kind of archaeological signature, where we see uh, things stopping happening, not investment, the opposite, uh, neglect, and shrinkage. And I've already mentioned how this, the town may have shrunk significantly in, in the course of the uh, second century. And that shrinkage, again, it's difficult to read from the archaeological evidence, but we go back to our wonderful tree ring dating. And the thing about tree ring dating, they chop down trees in Port Town to build something. They're building a new drain. We need some more wood because we're redoing our roads. Um, and we get gaps in when people are, are, are chopping trees down. Because we've got so many from London, we don't just talk about, oh, we can date this building. We can all say, oh, there's a period where they're not doing much building work. Oh, they're not going into the forests to do forestry management, to, to fell the trees. They're not bringing them to town. And if you combine what we know about the shrinkage of London, which we do know is going on in the second century, with the chronology of when people are building new drains, that suggests that the fall-off in population is concentrated in a period after 165, that sort of period, that time there. Um, this is exactly the time we know the empire is going through a major pandemic. Um, and indeed, we've got a little magical charm found on the Thames foreshore, which uses a spell. And that spell, to ward off plague, is one directly associated with an, a known oracle of the 160s against plague. So it, it's not just any old charm. It's not just any old spell. It belongs in this particular point in time. So we know that somebody in London was so scared of the plague, they had one of these charms written. And we know that London, for some reason, is shrinking from being a town of 30,000 plus to something a third less, maybe even as much as two thirds less. And it's only an indirect argument. We can't prove that plague hurts London, but it does provide an explanation as to why the city might be shrinking so dramatically in, in that period of time. And we then do see a period of relative neglect before a generation later, people start to reuse London in, in a bigger, more ambitious way. Um, and that Plague of Gallons in, in the second century, I think, is, is an important event in, in, in London's history. Can't prove it, but it's, it's, a, it's a strong argument and it's, it's a hypothesis that we can carry on exploring. We do know that London in the early Roman period, up until the mid-third century, was really, really important because of the bridge and the port. And the quayside was a major part of the topography of the city. And London is importing shipments of grain. Uh, it's importing amphora full of oil. It's importing wine. And these are serving the appetites of, of both the city and of the attendant communities who, who, who rely on it. Um, and all the way through, the port is kind of the, 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 the motor, the, the driving force. Um, Attached to it is, is a different and longer story, which I probably can't go into now, which is about what's going on with grain supply. I do I think London is, is an important mechanism for what, a, a form of a owner supply, the idea of uh, regular grain supplies. Uh, London has these um, uh, mills, we think. We've got evidence of two, three, maybe even four uh, mills where people are grinding vast quantities of, of, of grain into flour, making bread, 
bread and circuses. We, we know Vespasian's built his circuit, well, his amphitheatre. There's also evidence going on to suggest that, that we've got the... We're going back to the point I was trying to make to start with. These are uh, activities that characterise the early Roman city that then start to drop away, not all in one go, but the, the mills probably don't survive the second century. But the, uh, the waterfront... It's not only begins to be neglected, but somebody comes along, I say somebody, many people come along and pull away the timbers that had formed the waterfront. They are hacking into the tiebacks, they're removing the bolts of timbers. And there is a bit of a ditch being chased in front on the foreshore. I say a bit of a ditch, it could be naturally made, it could be a water channel, but it could also be defensive. And so we are seeing what was uh, a, a waterfront converted into perhaps a defensive bank. It's one explanation. What is undoubtedly the case, though, is that the port's not working. I mean, whether or not they're creating a defensive barrier there, we do know that the whole function of the early city is now no longer part of the game. It's no longer important. And that does also appear to happen in the 250s. The dating, again, depends on what people are doing elsewhere in terms of using timber. When are they chopping down trees? We know that people are building their drains, laying out their roads, uh, until some date in the 250s. And the dendrochronology does point to it being very coterminous with what we know of another plague event in the, th the Plague of Cyprian, it's called, by, from uh, a bishop of North Africa. Um, but that plague event uh, could perhaps account for the drop-off in the use of the port. And that's a failure of the supply of grain and oil and wine. Now, that failure of supply isn't necessarily because people are uh, dropping in, 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 in their droves, but it may be because you can no longer find the manpower to get the fleet to work. It, and, and I think that's the key issue when we talk about these plague events. People don't have to have died in large numbers to not want to be hanging around in a busy city where you can be infected. Urban flight is likely to be a consequence of pandemic events. And so maybe what we're seeing in London is a consequence of urban flight and a loss of military manpower and naval manpower in these events. This is supp supposition. It's a thesis. It's an argument. We cannot provide the evidential links that prove that argument to be ca the case, but it fits the evidence that we've got. And only does it fit the evidence that we've got, it starts to help shed light on other big, big changes going on in, in the Roman world. And so uh, there are connections that we can begin to, to risk drawing between our evidence and, and those big moments in history. And if so, that's a very big if, but if so, we're beginning to see out of the dating we get from Roman London, some arguments as to how and why the Roman world changes as it does. And I know plenty will wish to disagree with those arguments, but they are terribly important to advance. And I think we can make some, some very interesting conclusions about the Roman world from London. And that's part of the point of having spent so much time and effort digging it. I think this very nicely brings me on to my final question, really, which is, in your opinion, what can we see of the Roman legacy in London today? There's not a lot to see. Uh, I mean, there are a couple of really rather splendidly presented archaeological sites. And, and for those 
who can they, to get to them. Uh, the remains of the Roman amphitheatre underneath the Guildhall uh, Art Gallery is a lovely site, and it's a very pleasant visit, and it's very suggestive. Uh, and that was found by archaeologists in, in, in the 1980s uh, from the Museum of London and done a splendid job of, of its interpretation and display. Uh, the other is a more recent display, but that's of the Temple of Mithras. And we've, we've not got into that because that's another podcast, perhaps. But the, the whole gods of, of Roman London bit um, is enormously illuminated by the discovery of the Temple of Mithras uh, in 1954. Uh, it was displayed on a slightly strange little pedestal um, next to the building until the Bloomberg headquarters building was built. And in the rebuilding of the Bloomberg headquarters building, the Muse- Museum of London were invited back in to dismantle the uh, rebuilt uh, Temple of Mithras, to excavate the site where it was originally found and to replace and restructure the remains. And it's made, again, a lovely site to visit. And 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 it, it, it's free to visit, but it does need an appointment, but is, is splendid. So there are these two great sites to visit. And then there are some fragments of the, of the Roman city wall, which are make a pleasant walk uh, through the city. But the, but the real things that survive of London are it's it's it, it, the idea of London. Um, if we go back to what I was said earlier on about the the Thames being a frontier, the bridge, and the need to unite the southern parts of Britain into a single polity under Roman rule, um, that all starts to fall apart. Rome essentially just gives up being bothered with Britain. It's sad to say, but the the, the politics of the fourth century, as different usurpers arise, as power is relocated in the empire, means the frontier areas are are, are denuded of of, of resources, denuded of troops. Um, And and London as a frontier city is therefore just less of consequence. And and it it, it goes into its decline uh, within the Roman period. And when the Roman administration eventually fails, as it does, it, it has no worth, it has no value. So the city itself kind of disappears but the idea of it remains and when um uh, popes begin to want to send missionaries to re-establish the christian church they're going to the old roman centers uh, because they know those to be where uh, the church had previously run its affairs and i think the key thing is that the roman city does not really have any direct continuities but it generates a landscape and an idea that is necessarily reinvented That was Dominic Perring. His book, London in the Roman World, is out now, published by Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.